Welcome to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. All of us who call ourselves animal activists or animal advocates share a common concern, a concern for animals and the suffering caused by humans on animals. Chances are, if you're listening to the show, you're working in your own way to reduce animal suffering on this planet. Maybe you rescued your last dog or cat from a shelter or rescue organization. Or perhaps you signed a petition to stop the cruel practice of seal hunting. Or you made a conscious decision to try and remove meat products from your diet. Whether you realize it or not, if you took any one of these or countless other actions to help an animal or animals, you are part of the animal welfare movement. Have you ever wondered when the animal welfare and animal rights movements began or what precipitated the existence of animal advocacy? Despite tremendous growth in animal advocacy throughout the years, this belief that animals exist for human use dates back tens of thousands of years. Like any belief system, it's deeply rooted in our history and culture and cannot be changed overnight. Eight to 10,000 years ago, people first began the practice of herding, significantly changing the relationship to humans. Humans began owning and confining animals such as sheep and goats for food. 2,000 years after that, people started owning cows. Domestication of animals for food was an essential element in the progress of human civilization. Millennia later, Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India's non-violence independence movement, proclaimed, The greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. But before Gandhi, Enlightenment-era philosophers offered their own formulations about animals in society. And I'll just touch upon a few of them here. We'll dive into this in a bit more detail in an upcoming show. Well-known philosophers Immanuel Kant and René Descartes both theorized that animals did not have equal consideration with humans because animals lacked consciousness, reason, and autonomy. Kant and Descartes subscribe to what is known as indirect theories, theories that have at their basis the requirement that one should not harm animals, but only because doing so indirectly does harm to a human being's morality. 17th century philosopher Descartes, who is often referred to as the father of modern philosophy, believed animals could not reason and were incapable of feeling pain. They were akin to mechanical robots who were not deserving of compassion like humans. Immanuel Kant's work has been discussed throughout animal advocacy movements to this day. While he did not believe that humans had any ethical obligation to animals, he felt cruelty should be avoided simply because cruelty toward animals would lead to the development of cruel habits that humans would inflict on one another. Possibly the most animal-friendly viewpoint was that of the 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill. He believed the right action was that which minimized pain and suffering and maximized pleasure for everyone involved, referred to as utilitarianism. His philosophy applied to humans as well as non-human animals. As an example, a utilitarian might claim that the treatment of millions of experimental laboratory animals is okay if billions of people benefit from it by gaining better health. Given the recent visibility of animal rights issues in media and law, one might think the animal rights movement was new. However, 2,500 years ago and further back in history, there are recorded cases of respected people urging others to show compassion for animals. Since its earliest recordings, the animal rights movement has always been tied in with vegan living as a means of eliminating or minimizing cruelty to animals. The spiritual teachers of India who rejected the herding culture were the earliest animal activists that we know of today. 
They committed to minimizing cruelty by interfering with animals as little as possible and allowing them to live out their lives as natural beings. They taught and practiced a vegan lifestyle. The most prominent of these would be Mahavir, a significant teacher in the Jain tradition, and the Buddha, both of whom taught their students compassion through meatless living. Both Jainism, which is traditionally known as Jain Dharma, an ancient Indian religion, and Buddhism, which encompasses a variety of traditions, beliefs, and spiritual practices primarily based on original teachings of the Buddha, taught and practiced the teaching and understanding of Ahimsa. Ahimsa is a consciousness of nonviolence. The essential belief is that violence toward any living beings is unethical and brings suffering to the victim, the perpetrator, and society. It's inspired by the premise that all living beings have the spark of the divine spiritual energy, and therefore to hurt another being is to hurt oneself. Ahimsa has been related to the belief that violence has karmic consequences. Both Jain and Buddhism practice nonviolence. Adherents of these practices were not permitted to own animals or harm animals. The 1860s is when organized animal protection really began in America. Citizens launched independent nonprofit societies for the protection of cruelty to animals, SPCAs in several cities. However, unfortunately, after World War I, many of these initiatives lost momentum. Animal protection saw a revival following World War II. Treatment and use of animals began to come under greater scrutiny. Ideas about what had always been regarded as humane treatment of animals started being challenged. Once again, attitudes about the relationship between humans and non-human animals began to change. In the mid to late 1940s, scientific institutions had turned to municipal shelters to get cheap dogs and cats for research. In fact, scientific institutions devoted effort to get animal procurement laws passed, allowing them to gain access to animals from municipally owned shelters. These laws usually passed without difficulty. In the early 1950s, the animal rights movement took on one primary cause, the issue of pound seizure, which was rooted in existing animal shelter principles and policies. In pound seizure, dog and cats in shelters were sold or released for use in research. Animal advocates took issue with the increase in amounts of money spent on biomedical research, which in turn increased the demand of laboratory animals, many of which came from shelters. Most local humane society officials felt that forcing organizations to provide animals for research violated their mission and ethics. However, leaders within the American Humane Association tried to negotiate with the biomedical research community rather than outright oppose them. This was likely because some key management positions in the American Humane Association were also salaried staff executive positions, so there was some conflict of interest. Salaried executives had an interest in maintaining their jobs, which meant not making themselves controversial figures in the communities they served. This fueled anger among supporters of the American Humane Association and caused discord within the organization. Ultimately, the American Humane Association backed away from this issue altogether. In 1951, the Animal Welfare Institute was formed, and in 1954, the Humane Society of the United States was created. Interestingly, both of these organizations were formed by people who were formerly associated with the American Humane Association. The many social justice movements of the 1960s and 1970s paved the way for the evolution of the animal rights movement, which then developed into two different approaches to animal rights, the utilitarian way of thinking and the rights theory approach. 
1975 publication of utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer's controversial book, Animal Liberation, again changed the conversation about human treatment of animals. It impacted what people ate, what they wore, and how humans perceived animals. Singer argued all creatures have a right to, quote, equal consideration because they can suffer. In the book, he writes about the cruel practices used in factory farming and the horrors perpetrated on animals used for laboratory testing. Speciesism is the term Singer used in his book to describe the exploitation of animals. It refers to an attitude of bias against a being because of the species to which it belongs. He argues that it is discrimination no different from racism or sexism. Essentially, it allows humans to view animals as inferior and in doing so justifies regarding animals not as individuals, but as objects and means to fulfill our human desires. Many consider Singer's book the benchmark or Bible of the animal rights movement and the foundation upon which much of the movement's ideas are based. However, another branch of animal activists believe animal liberation's utilitarian viewpoint was too conservative. In 1983, philosopher Tom Reagan applied deontology, a branch of philosophy that explores moral duty to animals. In his view, any being that is a subject of a life is a being that has inherent value. Reagan's book, The Case for Animal Rights, took the position that animals possess intrinsic moral rights as individuals with complex feelings and experiences that extend beyond their ability to suffer. To this day, the book is still considered a classic of moral philosophy. With the 1990s came the Internet, which made it vastly easier for animal advocates to connect with one another, form groups, advocate, and network animals in shelters and rescue groups. Transport groups could easily connect shelter animals in one state with prospective loving homes in another. A cute video of a prancing baby goat at a small sanctuary could be viewed by millions worldwide. Anyone, anywhere could join in and help the cause even from their own homes. However, as with every other change in society, it has come with a downside. The hyper-connected internet world has made it easier for people who are looking to acquire free or cheap animals to sell, abuse, and fight, for game hunters to organize, and for videos depicting animal abuse to be shared. But it's essential to reflect on how much has been gained throughout the centuries. Animals now have their place, not only in our homes, hearts, and families, but continue to gain protection and rights in the legal system. Nonprofit animal welfare and animal rights groups have proliferated, from bare-bones locally acting ones to national and international complex corporate organizations. The Animal Welfare Act and the Endangered Species Act are cornerstones and provide broad protections, although not nearly broad enough, for innumerable animals. Private ownership of exotic animals is restricted, and more and more cities have banned traveling circuses which use animals. Courses in animal law have become commonplace in law schools. I can go on. Cruelty-free cosmetics are highly sought by consumers and will soon be the standard worldwide. Research methods which avoid the use and abuse of animals are coming online and becoming increasingly accepted as better and less expensive. The explosion of tasty and healthful plant-based food items, both in the market and in restaurants, is huge and permits anyone to easily begin eating fewer animal products. The dog and cat overpopulation problem, with its attendant euthanasia of unwanted animals, is almost licked. Most dog racing tracks have closed. The cruelty of horse racing has finally been exposed. And many more. 
Listeners know there's still so much work to do, but now is a perfect time to get involved and take action, or at least to do a little more than you're already doing. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 12th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure-of-eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise, quick movements, including backwards and upside-down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long, specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than two grams. That's less than a penny, and most weigh less than five grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip. They often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cord's handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. AirVet, which is a veterinarian telemedicine platform, cautions pet owners about allowing their dogs to swim in public bodies of water after four dogs became sick this past week after swimming in Lake Travis near Austin, Texas. Peter, we've spoken to veterinarian Robert Reed about dogs getting sick and dying after swimming in lakes and rivers contaminated with toxic blue-green algae blooms. Certain types of algae blooms are highly toxic to dogs. Chief Medical Officer and co-founder of AirVet said, Out of an abundance of caution, we would strongly recommend against allowing your dog to swim in a lake, river, or body of water that is experiencing any type of algae bloom. Apparently, there are 30 different types of cyanobacteria, which are associated with this blue-green algae and other toxic algae blooms. And exposure can damage the dog's liver, destroy kidney cells, destroy nerve cells, or causes hives and rashes. Symptoms of exposure can include vomiting, diarrhea, lethargy, blood in the stool, pale gums, yellowing of the eyes known as jaundice, seizures, disorientation, coma, and shock. Additionally, muscle tremors, muscle rigidity, paralysis, a bluing of the gums, and difficulty breathing are also signs of exposure to a toxin. Weber says, the bottom line is that if you think your pet may be at risk or if they are experiencing any of these symptoms, contact a veterinarian as soon as possible, as these symptoms are signs that the situation could worsen quickly. So interesting, Lori, uh, that this happened in the cool weather and not in the warm spring or summer. Right. right? And also uh, another warning that I just recall, sometimes you can't tell if the body of water is affected. It could seem 
clear or doesn't have a scum on it. So just uh, avoid it. Employees of East Bay Regional Park in Oakland, California, are shooting feral cats. Oh, that's, that's a fine example on how to manage feral cats, doesn't it? They claim the cats were threatening protective and endangered wildlife along the Oakland shoreline. The park district has been flooded with angry messages from cat lovers and rescue groups, including the woman who's been fixing these cats and feeding them and trying to get them adopted. She was just devastated. The question raised was, did park rangers warn this woman who was crying for the cats that her cat colony was about to be targeted? So with all the public outrage, the park is considering changing their killing policy. Yes, I'd think so. Becky Robinson with Alley Cat Allies says it is unconscionable to think that any policy which allows for the lethal removal of cats, a cruel and ineffective practice which must be eliminated, could be adopted in the Bay Area. She goes on, the East Bay Regional Park District should be using independent research to form sound policies that rely on proven methods for the reduction of community cat populations such as trap new to return. The public was outraged to learn about the premeditated killing of these cats and has spoken out in overwhelming opposition to lethal policies in their parks. This is from Alley Cat Allies press release. Trap New to Return, also known as TNR, is the humane and effective approach that improves the lives of community cats. It also protects public health, addresses community concerns, stabilizes outdoor cat populations, and helps cats and communities coexist. Through TNR, community cats are humanely trapped, spayed or neutered, vaccinated, ear-tipped for identification, and returned to their outdoor home. Americans are compassionate and reject mass killing. In a 2017 poll by Harris Interactive, 84% of Americans said that they prefer that their community use tax dollars to adopt sterilization as its cat control policy instead of bringing cats found outdoor into shelters to be killed. Robinson states, we hope to have collaborative conversations with board members about the dangers of this policy and effective measures to protect wildlife that do not involve rifles and bullets. It's clear that there were legal violations in the development of this policy and we'll be pursuing all of our options to protect cats and the community in the East Bay Regional Park District. There you go. Trap new to return. It's the way we do it, and it works. According to the Centers for Disease Control, an estimated 70% of adults are obese or overweight, and the statistics are almost as bad for our pets. The Association for Pet Obesity Prevention reports that according to its 2018 data, a staggering 56% of dogs and 60% of cats in the United States are overweight or obese. Obesity remains one of the few diseases that pet owners can influence, but it takes a while, many months, and it takes commitment and vigilance. The Morse Animal Foundation laid out some nice strategies to improve weight loss success in our pets. Switching a pet to a prescription diet that promotes weight loss remains one of the best and easiest ways to help a pet lose weight. Although many commercial foods are advertised as weight reduction or light diets, these products often are not as effective as prescription diets in promoting weight loss. And of course, you know the prescription diets require veterinarian's recommendation. Other weight loss strategies include giving pets plenty of exercise and social stimulation, very important, 
using food puzzles for feeding. This promotes slow consumption of the food while providing stimulation. We use slow feeding systems when we feed our dogs their meals, right, Peter? Partially effective. Thoughtful timing of spay and neutering can also help with weight control. Using a consistent measuring device, measuring cup or measuring scale to determine portions, avoiding high calorie, especially high fat treats, even in small amounts. Enlisting the support of the entire veterinary care team, avoiding assigning blame and engaging everyone in the family to help. And being patient, weight loss is hard. It's important to talk to your veterinarian before starting any weight loss and exercise program for your pet. Your veterinarian can help guide and program and provide resources to ensure success. Thank you, Morris Animal Foundation, for that. And if you want to listen to my interview with veterinarian Doug Coons about pet obesity, simply go to animalstodayradio.com and type in the search box, Pet Obesity. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. about hosting a radio show about animals is that we receive a ton of unsolicited samples of pet products of all sorts. We also get scores of books, but that's not what I want to talk about today. What we receive that leads to many questions around here are about dog treats and chewable dog toys. And we're always trying to figure out what's safe and what's appropriate for our dogs. Anyone who has dogs has to go through this process of deciding what's a good toy or treat for them, whether the item is safe or a choking hazard or nutritious or potentially toxic. So dog people, let's find out what we need to know about the safety of treats and toys. And here with us now is Dr. Doug Coons, Medical Director, Desert VCA Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California. Welcome to the program, Dr. Coons. Oh, thanks, Lori. I'm happy to be here. Doug, let's start with toys, and particularly the sorts of toys that a dog might chew on. What are the ideal toys, and what are the things that, in your view, are risky? You know, the most important thing is that the toy is sized appropriately for the dog. So, you know, you don't want to go and buy a three-foot-long rawhide bone for your chihuahua. So size the toy appropriate uh, for the size of the dog, and it shouldn't be something that can be destroyed uh, rapidly and ingested. So lots of times some of the softer toys uh, that have squeakers inside can sometimes be a little dangerous because some dogs will just obsessively go after those until they tear that squeaker out and uh, we once in a while have to take a squeaker out of a dog, and that's that's not fun for for your veterinarian or fun for the dog. So, uh, again, they should be pretty much indestructible toys. 
Let's get into some specific examples. Doug, how about the very hard plastic bones that are sometimes advertised for strong chewers, like, for example, Nyla bone? Some of them are so hard, I, I can't imagine them being safe for teeth. Exactly, Lori. My dental specialist, you know, there is a specialty in veterinary, in veterinary medicine for, for veterinary dentists, and they tell me that you shouldn't give your dog anything that you can't dent with your thumbnail. And uh, particularly the nyla bones and some of the other really hard bones, we, we tend to see slab fractures of the teeth, particularly some of the, the larger teeth on the, on the upper uh, arcade of teeth uh, will develop a slab fracture, and then the tooth has to be extracted, or they they require a, a root canal. So, you know, if you can't dent it with your thumbnail, you probably shouldn't give it to your dog. Good advice. How about the toys that are made of or have heavy-duty pieces of rope? One of my dogs loves them, but I have to tell you, Doug, we see bits of rope in her stool, and besides being a little gross, it always worries us a little bit. You know, those probably are pretty safe. And if there are little bits of rope that uh, get ingested, uh, they're probably just going to pass through without uh, causing any issues. In my 40 years of practice, uh, I don't think I've ever seen an issue with that kind of a toy. And by the way, since we're talking about rope, what is your opinion about dogs playing tug of war? Is, is it okay for their teeth? You know, it, it actually is is okay for their teeth. We we seldom see any harm coming from that kind of activity. You know, dogs sometimes will carry things in their mouth that are a little bit abrasive, and that can cause wear on the teeth, particularly tennis balls. Uh, dogs that are kind of obsessed with a tennis ball will see the, the canine, the long teeth, the uh, uh, worn down to expose the the, uh, the nerves, and that that's not a good thing. So I I don't like uh, you know things that are habitually carried in the mouth that uh, that are abrasive. Oh, very good. Okay, how about the rubber toys, like the classic Kong toys? I love Kongs uh, for two reasons. Number one, they're they're pretty indestructible. They have give to them, so they're, they're not likely to fracture a tooth. But even more importantly, those kinds of toys can entertain a dog because you can pack them with their food. Uh, some behaviorists uh, recommend uh, putting peanut butter in them as long as it doesn't have xylitol, uh, and then freezing them. And then the dogs will occupy themselves with those for hours, particularly dogs that that tend to be larger breed dogs that uh, have some anxiety and just being cooped up all the time. This gives them a job. What a great tip. Doug, some toys have thick fabric as one of their main components. What do you think about those? You know, as long as it's not destroyed quickly, I don't have a problem with the ones that are fabric. They're, again, they're soft. They're not going to cause any harm to the teeth. And generally, if they get pieces of it off, uh, it's going to pass. But the big thing is, if the toy starts to get destroyed, throw it away. Don't risk the, you know, the dog ingesting major parts of it that would then require removal. Doug, earlier you commented about the squeaky toys. You know, these toys have a stuffing or filling to them, and they also have this squeaking device, which we often see as two parts. One is a softer, hollow plastic component 
compressible balloon type piece and the other is a small hard plastic cylinder that makes the sound when the air gets pushed through it. I would have to say our dogs would ingest all of this if we let them. Again, the the key uh, to the squeaky toys is does the dog just enjoy playing with it or is the dog destroying it? And if the dog's destroying it, it's not a not a good choice. I've had dogs that have had squeaky toys, and they, they love to squeak them and carry them around, but they haven't destroyed them. But if they're destroying them, then there's potential for ingestion. Right. So, Doug, what are your recommendations for dogs who seem to be able to destroy and tear apart any kind of toy? Well, I, I absolutely have angst over that. I don't like to see a toy that's easily destroyed or even that's difficult to destroy, but once the dog starts to destroy it, there's the potential for ingestion. And it's just better to err in the realm of of safety and, and not let the dog continue to destroy a toy once that process has begun. Throw it away and buy a new toy. Okay, so Doug, let's move on to treats and animal bones. Overall, what are your likes and dislikes in terms of dog safety? Well, again, I, I, I'll refer back to the, to the statement I made about the toys uh, that my dental specialists uh, say, and that is if you can't dent it with your thumbnail, don't give it to your dog. And so, you know, giving a, a bone carries some risk with it. And again, we tend to see these slab fractures of the upper fourth premolar, which is the big tooth, chewing tooth uh, on on either side uh, in the upper upper teeth. And so we want to stay away from things that are really hard like that. As much as dogs love those, you know, I've seen a little round bone that you get out of a a round steak. Uh, Dogs will chew the marrow out of it and then chew them. And sometimes that gets caught around the the upper canine teeth. and, And then you have a trip to the vet trying to extract a bone from the mouth. So I'm not really big on those. I'm not really big on pig's ears and bully sticks uh, because those, uh, you know, are both animal parts and somebody, you know, found out that something that they were throwing away could be turned into income. And in the literature, there are reports of both of those harboring E. coli. Mm. And so uh, just, again, best to stay away from those. Or if you do use them, be sure you know the country of origin. If it's from the United States, there's been somewhat of an inspection process before those are marketed, whereas from some other countries, uh, there's a risk involved that you could infect your dog. So I'm, I'm not I'm not a fan of those. Doug, we've never been in the habit of giving our dogs rawhide because we've heard it can be particularly dangerous. What's your advice there? You know, again, rawhide uh, carries some risk because it's hard. I don't know if you've ever tried to dent a, a rawhide bone with your thumbnail. You can't do it. Yeah. So we do see fractured teeth from rawhide. Uh, the other thing that we see, particularly in the smaller rawhide things that are, you know, kind of the shape of a pencil, those can be ingested very quickly. And because they're eaten and the whole thing goes down, they can cause a, an intestinal obstruction. And we do find instances where we've had to go in and surgically remove those. Mm. So 
I'm, I'm not a big Rawhide fan. Okay, and there's a popular brand name product that everyone seems to know about called Greenies. What are they made of and are they safe? The Greenies are a vegetable fiber product. And actually, you know, there was a problem with Greenies a few years ago. And, and so the manufacturer went through a process of revamping their product. And Greenies are, are really good. And there are several companies that, that make Greenies. There's a Greenie made by one company that's impregnated with chlorhexidine. And chlorhexidine is a, a, it's a chemical but it's used as a human mouthwash. We use it to cleanse a wound. And that chlorhexidine that's impregnated in those greenies is antibacterial to the mouth, so it really does help to keep the bacteria down. There's a newer product called Oravet that is like a greenie. It has those long-strand vegetable fibers, which help to scrape the plaque off the teeth. But it also has another product, again, that comes from human medicine that softens plaque and calculus so that when the dog chews that treat, it softens the calculus, and then the long-strand vegetable fibers that surround it help to remove that. So appropriate to treats like that can really be a benefit because even though the gold standard is brushing your dog's teeth, we all know realistically that uh, there is not every dog out there uh, is going to be amenable to that. One final question I have for you. Is it okay to let my dogs eat ice cubes once in a while? I mean, it makes one of my dogs so happy for a few seconds, but I've read that you really shouldn't do this. You know, it it runs the same danger as you and I chewing on ice. You've got something very cold and very hard, and it can lead to, to tooth fractures. Now, that said, sometimes if I have a dog that's got a little bit of an upset tummy and has had a vomiting problem, I recommend putting two or three ice cubes in a bowl for a dog to lick and drink the water, and that controls the amount of water that's ingested. So... I'm not totally against ice cubes, but uh, as a regular treat, I I don't recommend it because, again, the, the potential for tooth fracture. Veterinarian Dr. Douglas Coons, this was so informative and educational. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Lori. It's been my pleasure. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about narwhals. These Arctic whales are recognized for their long, straight ivory tusks, which are often referred to as a unicorn horn. These iconic whales have intrigued explorers and scientists for hundreds of years. The narwhal's tusk, actually a tooth, has earned these medium-sized whales the moniker Unicorns of the Sea. They are around the same size as beluga whales, and they live in packs of 2 to 10. The total length of both male and female narwhals, excluding the tusk of the male, can range from 13 to 18 feet. Males weigh around 3,500 pounds and females weigh around 2,200 pounds. Narwhals favor cold temperatures and live in the Arctic waters of Canada, Russia, Norway, and Greenland, and they live for 30 to 40 years. 
The tusk may appear to emerge from the center of the narwhal's head, but it's actually an exaggerated front left tooth that protrudes from the upper lip. The tusk grows throughout the narwhal's life, and while it appears straight, a closer look shows that it has a spiral contour. Plus, the tusks lack hard enamel. The tusks are mainly a male feature, although approximately 15% of female narwhals have them. Recent drone videos revealed the tusk being used to stun fish, which are then eaten. Other probable functions include echolocation and in courtship. Their diet consists of shrimp, squid, and fish. They are the prey of orcas, sharks, polar bears, walruses, and of course, humans. It is legal for the northern Inuit population to hunt narwhals in Canada. A final point of interest is the narwhal's scientific name, Monodon monoceros, which is derived from the Greek, one tooth, one horn. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Living in the desert in Southern California is just a delightful thing. And uh, however, it does bring its encounters with wild animals, particularly snakes and spiders and scorpions. And I have to tell you, I'm really, I will not ever get used to this. And uh, it's, a, it's a new experience not growing up around, around these animals. And, and uh, I, as much as I want them to live happily, I just don't want to have too many close encounters with them. But we did have a nice close encounter with a with a snake a uh, couple couple months ago when we were driving, right? Yeah. So we were driving along this uh, this two lane road near our house, and I see something down maybe fifty yards away. It could have been a, a sock or a garment of clothing or whatever, but no. We got a little closer, and I see it's really a snake, and it's pretty big, and it's moving and slowly S shaped. I don't know. I, I, I well. It was destined to be squished by somebody. Right. So we, we uh, got out like we usually do for for dogs or mostly for dogs in the road, right? And uh, you assumed your usual posture. I sure with did. Hands out and just having a lot of faith in people that they're going to abide by your wishes. And, and uh, so we got this. I see this snake and he's she. I figured out she's a she. She looked pretty fat and probably pregnant i'm guessing not not really expert on these things and taking her time just going across the road and and uh i was trying to get her to go into the bushes along the edge of the road and she she responded to i would tap her tail a tiny bit she wasn't rattling or anything like that but uh um she did finally go across and and get into the bushes and probably went on to the golf course where 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 we were and I sent the uh, you know while I'm doing this of course you've got to photograph it you know you and you have to video document what you're doing and I sent it off to one of our local actually a world-renowned expert in these things and it was indeed a rattlesnake and, and uh, probably pregnant too wow and and uh, looking at these videos I'm a little little it makes me a little worried how close I was with my foot touching uh, and so Anyway, she are, got away. Are you okay. more worried about that or more worried about your wife being hit by a car trying to stop traffic? Uh, you know traffic? what? I, I can do something about the snake. Okay. But, but you're, you're going to do what you're going to do. So <laughs> you've had some encounters? I, oh, yes. Boy, years ago when I was in Tucson, Arizona for my residency training, this was years ago, came home late one night, yeah. upstairs apartment, just walked up, maybe 11, 12 at night. I was tired. I was hungry. I was anxious to get inside. At my doorstep was a huge, hairy tarantula. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I let out this blood-curdling scream that could have 
woken up all my neighbors, and it did, a couple of them at least. My neighbor who lives, lived in the adjacent apartment complex next to me heard me, ran out. He thought I was being mugged or attacked and ran up the stairs and said, what's wrong, what's wrong? And he sees this, the, the tarantula and said, oh, that's just a little spider, nothing to be scared of. <laughs> Went back into his house, got his tennis racket. Yeah. We're, t- we're tennis buddies. We, yeah. It's the same racket he plays tennis with. And he um, gently encouraged the tarantula to climb on his little racket, and he, he humanely and gently relocated the, the tarantula to a, a little empty desert lot nearby. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah, and it's it's you can't forget these. You can't episodes, forget, these, right? right? Something about the not only the size. I mean, and it's you know it got some substance to it. It's not a skinny little legged creature. It's it's like got some heft to it. And then you imagine but, things but like hairs. he's gonna right the hairs. You right. imagine he might jump. I know. And just a, you know t- attached to your chest or something or <laughs> your face. I know these <laughs> nightmares. They just come alive. I know. And then and then just suck your blood. I mean, you just you just worry. <laughs> Yeah. What's going to happen? So, of course, your your imagination just runs away. But, um, yeah, that's it. And how about our living room? Remember that episode? Well, that I witnessed summer. this personally. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I, we're just sitting one evening watching television. And, right. And, again, you were the first to notice something, right? Oh, we were just, we were trying to relax. It was like on a Saturday night. We were just trying to relax. And yeah. I had I saw something on my peripheral vision, some yeah. little thing run by well, I thought ran by but it, I thought it was maybe a, a cat or someone playing there and yeah. I had t- took a double take and there it was yep. a huge little <laughs> huge little tarantula that's a, that's a little as I, I recall yeah <laughs> just walking by in the living room walking on the, on by the, on the right tile. right right behind the couch and <laughs> and I screamed I said Peter look and you you missed it right you missed it he'd already walked behind the couch so you had to actually go you thought really right you kidding me? And I, we found him. You found him. And <laughs> I was worried that we were going to lose him. I know. That was your main thing. That was the main thing. Like, I can't go to bed. And then knowing he, we didn't catch him in the house. Right, right. Crawling so, on my face at night. So I used a piece of athletic equipment also. Oh, yeah? To, what was that? To the lacrosse That's right. So pulled out the lacrosse stick That's from right. the garage. And uh, you got a nice uh, box or bucket, I think you got. Yeah. And and I, I don't love this either. S- similar... I don't. I don't like getting too close to spiders or snakes. To tell you the truth, and uh, but I was able to encourage this guy to crawl up into the basket, the netting of of this stick, and he didn't seem to mind. And and I placed it in the bucket. He didn't seem to mind crawling into there too. And it's he's moving very slow, but still this notion. Uh, oh, is he going to jump on my neck or something? I know, I know. Like that, you know, at any moment. So. And this is the same lacrosse stick he bought. Purposely to purposely. play with our little pit mixed Cosmo because he yes. loves the ball, chasing the ball. Yeah, that really works out well, especially if you know how to use one of these things, right? It's a multi purpose yeah. function here. Yeah. It's good. So I love that. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, so what's the point of this? This point, point of this. Uh, well, you don't have to kill these uh, little critters. Right. You can humanely relocate them, That's even if exactly you don't right. feel thank all you. warm and fuzzy about them. That's exactly right. There you go. Good point. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm-hmm.